This is Power for Living, the Bible teaching ministry of Christ the King Church in Wakefield, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Feliciano Segundo, and our teacher is Father Michael Carl. So get all your Bibles and let's get started. Well, in our teaching time today, we are going to go over that passage that we just read from the Gospel according to Luke, or St. Luke, rather. And we're going to take a look at it because this is one of the most fascinating passages in all the Bible. But it's also one of the ones that will change in your perception of it every time you read it. In other words, you'll learn something new each time you take a look at this passage. Now, the first thing is that... We can look at this and see the need for community. And you think, well, how does that show that? Well, there's this one disciple with one of his pals, and they're walking together, and they're talking together. Now, they're not necessarily encouraging and cheering up one another because they're talking about how, how tragic it was that Jesus died, and they weren't sure if he had really risen from the dead. Now, there's this interesting passage in the book of Amos. It's Amos 3.3, 3, and it says, Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? So these two that are walking to Emmaus must have meant that these two were in agreement of some kind, and so they were. Now, R.C. Sproul writes about this passage that... It was about seven miles, a short enough trip, but one that would take about an hour and a half at normal pace. Now, that's what that means is that it didn't take them that long to make that trip. And Jesus asks them on the way, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. This probably stopped them in their tracks because they were thinking, how does he know what we were talking about? But then again, we're talking about Jesus. Now, it was if they had said to him, where in the world have you been? This is when Jesus, uh, no, that's when this, this is when Cleopas asked him, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? And it was in this case, it was if they had said to him, where in the world have you been? Then they recounted the events regarding his death and the reports of his resurrection. And in response, Jesus rebuked them. And this is where it's key to look at this and look at it carefully. Because he rebukes them saying, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And yes, this passage from R.C. Sproul goes a little farther than where we are right now, but... We need to take note of the fact that Jesus did not call these men stupid. And he didn't say that they were unintelligent or uneducated. He called them foolish. And in Jewish categories, the term fool does not describe somebody of low intelligence. It is not an intellectual assessment. It's a moral judgment. To be called a fool by God is to come under his judgment because it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. 
And so he didn't call them dumb for not catching on and for not knowing. He just let them know that they were being a bit foolhardy. It says in the passage that they were restrained from knowing and recognizing him. Now, what this means is, and it's interesting because the New Testament scholar R.T. France says about this one verse, compare Luke's strong statements about the disciples' earlier inability to understand Jesus' words. The language in Greek here is quite forceful. It says that their eyes were overpowered. As in John 20, verse 16, and 21, verse 7, recognition will subsequently follow, but in this case, however, it takes longer, and this allows time for the stranger to deliver this remarkable seminar, as it were, that follows before they reach their destination. And so they're walking along and they're chatting and, you know, saying, oh, you know, Jesus is gone, you know, and that kind of thing. You can imagine what they, would, what they would be feeling if they were followers of Christ, but had not yet heard that he had risen from the dead. They would say, well, he's gone. What are we going to do? Well, we wonder there that, you know, it says that they were in agreement. You know, we've determined that they were in agreement with one another, and they were not encouraging one another as the body of Christ is supposed to. However, this is not encouragement unless you count misery loves company as encouragement. How many believe that that's encouraging? Okay. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, what kind of conversation is this that you've had one another with one another as you walk and are sad? See, Jesus knows that inherently those two guys are in what we would call down south the mully grubs. Now, you've probably never heard that term before, and that's fine, but it means they're so low that you'd have to raise them up to bury them. Or they're in a rut. And a rut, the definition of a rut is a grave with the ends knocked out. So these guys are in you know, they're kind of depressed. Now, one of them is named Cleopas, and he's identified as a disciple of Jesus. Now, Cleopas is not a major figure in the gospel. As a matter of fact, if the apostles had trading cards made with their pictures on them, Cleopas would not have been one of them because he was kind of down there. He wasn't part of the original eleven. So he wasn't a star among them. He was just a follower of Christ. Now, that's, that's significant enough right there. Now, we know nothing of this man. It is possible that he is the Clopas of John 19.25, but that is well, not too sure. Nor do we know whether his companion was male or female. We don't know anything about the companion that he's walking with. They are simply two among the group of Judean supporters of Jesus, from whom, along with the Galilean disciples, the church in Acts will emerge. Now, Jesus asks them about those things that had been going on in Jerusalem, and he says, what things? Now, 
we have to keep in mind that Jesus never asks a question unless there's a real reason for it. And the questions Jesus always asked were the ones that were determined to get to what the real problem was. Not, sur not superfluous or surface level stuff like, well, how are you doing today? You know, anybody asks that. And we don't necessarily want to hear them recount a recitation of all the things that have happened in that day. We just want them to say, yeah, I'm all right, and move on. So Jesus doesn't ask those kinds of questions. He's asking, what is it that you guys are talking about? Now, Jesus is probing to see how much they really know about him. And it says, and David Guzik writes that Jesus skillfully played along with the conversation, encouraging the men to reveal their hearts. Even though he knew their hearts, there was value in them saying it to Jesus. Now, they knew some of the things about Jesus. They knew that they knew his name and where he was from. They knew that he had been called a prophet. They knew he was mighty in deed and word. They knew he had been crucified, and they knew he promised to redeem Israel. And they knew others that had said that he had risen from the dead. Now, these disciples had a hope, disappointed, as it were. Their hope was not truly disappointed, though, but in some ways their hope was what we would call misguided. Because... They thought that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. And when a lot of the Jews in that time thought about redeeming Israel, what were they thinking, usually? Military conquer? Military conquer? Yes, that's exactly right. They were thinking that Jesus was going to gather up a band of mercenaries and go drive the Romans from Israel. Sort of like the Maccabeans had done with the Syrian Greeks about 200 years before that. They were thinking military conquest. And, but as we all know, that was not Jesus' primary mission. Now, what we need to get to here is that Jesus wanted to know from them what he wants to know from us today. Can we believe without seeing with our own eyes? We can believe and must believe based on the reliable eyewitness testimony of other people. And so we can know and believe. And Jesus wants to know that if, that if we believe on those terms, do we believe him and do we truly believe that he is risen from the dead, that he is the redeemer, he's the mighty one, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, etc., etc.? Do we believe that? And that's what he wants us to be able to say. Jesus then tells them again, O oh, foolish ones, and he goes and he recites to them where he had appeared in Scripture all the way from Genesis through Malachi. That is a significant lecture, if you will. How would you like it if Jesus came alongside you physically, and started explaining to you 
Every part of the scriptures where he appeared in one way or the other, or either in mention or actually physically as a theophany, like that fourth man in the furnace, etc. How would you like that? Would, would that be interesting to you? Would it frighten you a little bit to suddenly see Jesus standing there next to you? Be honest, because I know it would freak you out, and it would freak me out too. But they got probably one of the best, not probably, excuse me, they got the best exposition of Scripture that anyone has ever received. Because they heard it from Jesus himself. And you can't get any better of a teacher, theologian, or lecturer than Jesus. Amen? Okay, now, they got to their destination, but the story's not over. As a matter of fact, it gets even better after this. Because Jesus goes in, and he sits down with them, and it says that he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes were opened. Now, we know that it's not the physical eyes, because these guys were walking down the road to Emmaus, and you know they didn't do it with their eyes closed. So what kind of eyes do you think that were opened at that moment? They're spiritual eyes to understand. And I think that if Jesus was talking to me directly, my heart would probably be burning inside too. Because there's suddenly the, whoa, this is Jesus. And he's talking to me. Wow, okay. Now, Jesus is at the table with them. And Henri Nouwen wrote about this passage as in when their eyes were open. He says, It is this intense desire of God to enter into the most intimate relationship with us that forms the core of the Eucharistic celebration and the Eucharistic life. God not only wants to enter human history by becoming a person who lives in a specific epoch and a specific country, but God wants to become our daily food and drink at any time and any place. Therefore, Jesus takes bread. He blesses it and he breaks it and gives it to us. And then as we see the bread in our hands and bring it to our mouths to eat it, yes, then our eyes are opened and we recognize him. Eucharist is recognition. It is the full realization that the one who takes, blesses, breaks, and gives is the one who, from the beginning of time, has desired to enter into communion with us. Communion is what God wants, and ideally what we want. It is the deepest cry of God's in our heart, because we are made with a heart that can be satisfied only by the one who made it. God created in our heart a yearning for communion that no one but God can and wants to fulfill. God knows this, but we seldom do. We keep looking somewhere else for that experience of belonging. 
We look at the splendor of nature, the excitement of history, and the attractiveness of people, but that simple breaking of the bread, so ordinary and unspectacular, seems such an unlikely place to find the communion for which we yearn. Still, if we have mourned our losses, listened to him on the road, and invited him into our innermost being, we will know that the communion we have been waiting to receive is the same communion he has been waiting to give. And that's what we do every week, and that's why we do that every week. For the realization to have our eyes opened to the truths of the gospel, that thing we do after the sermon every week by coming to the altar and receiving the body and the blood of Jesus is not simply a religious exercise. It is to make real before our eyes that communion with Christ. And it obviously worked for those two guys because what did they do? They immediately got up, went back to Jerusalem And they said, Jesus is alive and he's appeared to Simon. Those guys were turned from sad people who were in the mully grubs into mighty preachers of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And so think about this. Cleopas, who was not a major disciple, had the honor of being able to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus because he had seen and been with the resurrected Jesus. And we can also have that fellowship with the resurrected Jesus every time we open our Bibles or every time we hear the Word of God preached or every time we come to the altar and receive the body and blood. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's edition of Power for Living. If you happen to miss any of our other programs, be sure to go to our podcast page at ChristTheKingNorthShore.podbean.com. And you can also visit our website at www.ctknorthshore.org. If this program has been a blessing, feel free to let us know. Write us at Power for Living, care of Christ the King Church, 4 Railroad Avenue, Suite 309 in Wakefield, Massachusetts, 01880. Or you can also send us an email at ChristTheKingNorthShore at gmail.com. You can be a part of this gospel ministry by becoming a patron of Power for Living. You can find out how by clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of our podcast page. That's it for this week, and until next time, remember that Jesus is your Power for Living.